As we think about this psalm that was just read, Psalm 40, it's interesting the words that begin the psalm. The psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. The very first words of the psalm today point, I think, to one of the foundations of our faith. There's an old saying that goes that all good things come to those who wait. Indeed, patience even makes the top of Paul's nine lists of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit represent the qualities that, that, that are in our lives, that the Spirit of God grows in us through Jesus Christ. And to be sure, I'm encouraged when I read Paul's list, it's clear that faith brings a sense of, of love and of joy in our lives. And, and without faith, it would be difficult to imagine having a sense of peace in our lives. But then comes the fourth item on the list, patience. If I were to do a survey this morning of these nine qualities of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and I were to ask you, which one is the most difficult for you to reproduce in terms of character, I might guess that many of us would say patience. It's a significant challenge. Our culture is not built to, uh, to live on patience. And I find that, that quality to be difficult for many, many people, myself included. So let me share, you, share with you how I would give an example of why patience is difficult for me. Last Sunday, I was invited to go play golf with a group of guys and was really excited. I like to play golf. I'm not that great. I lose a lot of balls, but, uh, uh, you know, I love to play. And I looked in my bag, and sure enough, I didn't have very many golf balls. And so I had to make a run to Walmart before I was going to play golf. And, and Walmart on a Sunday afternoon, I will admit, is not the most favorite place for me to be. Now, I know it's, it's a favorite place for a lot of people because there's a lot of people there on Sunday afternoon, but it's not my favorite place to be. And so one of the things I always do if I have to go to Walmart on a Sunday afternoon is to see how fast I can go in and get out. It's kind of a little game I play, and I was kind of setting a goal that I could get in and out in five minutes that day. And so I, I thought I could do it. You're laughing. I, I've done this before. So I, I walk in. I know where the sporting goods section is. So I go right there. I get the golf balls I want. I go right back to the checkout stand, and I'm looking for a self-checkout counter, and I couldn't find one. And I'm thinking, what? No checkout counter in a Walmart in Salina, Kansas? The first Walmart I've ever seen that didn't have a checkout counter. Now, I know later, somebody told me that if you go way to the other side of the grocery side, there's still checkout stands. But on the side I was on, there weren't any. And so then I saw a, an aisle that said 20 items or less. And I thought, well, I can't get out in five minutes, but maybe if I get in this line, I can do it in seven minutes or less. And so I get in the shortest line. You always look for the shortest line, right? And I came to find out why it was the shortest line. In front of me, what appeared to be a mom and a teenage daughter, and they had two shopping carts full of school supplies, obviously more than the 20 items that they were checking out, way, way more. And... As I'm sitting here looking at the situation, I'm thinking, These, this isn't just supplies for the daughter to go back to school. The mom must be like a school administrator or a school teacher, and she's buying enough supplies for what looks like her whole classroom. And the first thing that came to my mind, kind of a twisted humor, is, okay, I've got a teacher in front of me who either can't read 20 items or less, <laughs> or she has problems with math and she can't count to 20. I don't know what the, the issue is. But really, the story isn't about the, the lady who's in front of me. And I would tell you, maybe, there, maybe you're here this morning. <laughs> and don't feel badly. The sign is very small, and the checkout line looks like all the rest of the checkout lines. The real issue is me, right? 
I don't like to wait, especially at a checkout line at, at Walmart. I struggle sometimes with patience, and I would bet many of you have the same struggle that I do. If you're like me, these little inconveniences, they test us. Patience often probably is not our number one strength, and yet there it is, right at the beginning of this passage, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, if this testimony of patience was an isolated one in Scripture, it would be different. But the issue of waiting on God is laced all throughout Scripture. There are dozens and dozens of passages that speak about waiting on the Lord. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 27 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And then this one may be one that you may have heard before, but Isaiah 40 says, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I could give you dozens more, but let's get, keep going in the message. But it's all over Scripture, isn't it? Now, here's the secret. It's not simply about waiting, but rather it's about waiting on the Lord that builds up our faith and it gives us a sense of peace in our life. The, the Bible is not simply telling us to grin and bear it, Okay while we wait for the traffic jam to clear up or for the line to go faster at the grocery store. It's not about that. All of this, all of that is not waiting on the Lord. Okay? It's just waiting. It's just part of life. Waiting on the Lord is a whole other thing. There may be times when stress and trials in our life are weighing heavily on our minds and on our hearts, especially when we feel stuck in the slimy, muddy pit of life, Right? With what seems like no hope of getting out, that's what waiting on the Lord, what we're speaking about. It's not just the minor inconveniences, it's the big stuff in life that we don't have answers, we don't see a way out. It's the kind of thing that happens when you get bad news that, that you have cancer and you don't know what the outcome will be and you have to wait. It's hearing that your job is being eliminated and you don't have another prospect on the horizon. And you have to wait. It's when your husband or your wife come up to, comes up to you and says, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. And you have to wait with a heavy and a broken heart. And you wonder, is God ever going to restore joy to my life? That's the kind of waiting we're talking about when we're in the pit of life. And when we're in that slimy, muddy pit that seems to be stuck and there's no way out, I think there's two ways we can go in that situation. One, we can either simply try to wait it out, or the second is we can wait on the Lord. What's the difference in those two scenarios? Well, waiting on the Lord is allowing our faith to engage our lives at that point of difficulty and, and to rest in a gentle trust that we are cared for and that God will bring to pass every divine purpose in our life that he has planned for us. I heard one time that the waiting room of life is where God most often can bring transformation in our lives to a more Christ-like life. 
Because in the waiting room, he has our attention. He has our full attention. And he can go to work in our lives like no other place, oftentimes. James, in his letter, says it this way. He says, consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be complete, not lacking anything. You see, God is at work transforming our lives into becoming like Christ. And that job is not completed yet. And so he's going to take those opportunities where we have trials, where we face perseverance, and develop perseverance and develop other kinds of character qualities in us so that we will not eventually lack anything in our character. Sometimes we're in the pit because of unforeseen circumstances that are out of our control, but sometimes we're in the pit because of our own sin, our own choices, our own failure to be faithful to God's purpose for our life. Whatever the reason why we find ourselves in the pit, the psalmist declares that the Lord is our deliverer. Listen to how God is at work when we wait upon him. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit and he put a new song in my mouth. Those are some awesome spiritual truths for us to grab a hold of in this passage. The first one I want us to consider is that God is listening. He heard our cry. He heard my cry. God is listening. One of the hallmarks of our society is that hardly anyone is listening anymore. Have you noticed that? There is so much noise, so much commotion, so much action in our culture that listening is not a value any longer. One of the most important things we can do, I believe, in the church when we build authentic Christian community is to take time to listen to one another. Listening attentively to another person is a gift to that person. And when we do that, we're basically saying, you're valuable, you're important to me, and so I'm going to take time to listen to you and to listen your story. Diedrich Bonhoeffer stated that the first service we owe to others in fellowship is to listen to them. If we fail to listen, there are spiritual consequences because, as he says, he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. The good news is that God is listening to us. Whether we're enjoying good times or we're languishing in the tough times, the affirmation of Scripture is that God is paying attention to the details of our living and listening to our laughter and our cries. Isn't that amazing? Even though we may not be able to get other human beings to listen to us, we literally have the ear of the Creator of the universe attuned to our words, to our prayers. That's incentive to wait patiently for the Lord, the God of creation is listening to us. But it gets better. Not only is he listening, but God is at work. God does more than listen. When we line our lives up with God by patiently waiting for and talking with God who listens to us, we can count on God's active response. Not only does the the psalmist declare that God is listening, but God also acts on his behalf. The psalmist says, He lifted me out of the slimy pit. He set my feet on a rock. And he gave me a firm place to stand. When we live in relationship with God and we spend time talking with him in solid confidence that God hears, that's going to ensure that our steps are secure. We gain clarity, we gain direction in living, 
And we're able to grow as we wait patiently on God to go to work in the secure assurance that God will act faithfully on his character and on our behalf. So God is listening. God is at work on our behalf. And God is renewing. We serve and we worship a God who is always at work in bringing renewal to his people. When God does act and save us from our sin and from our circumstances, the response is one of heartfelt praise. The psalmist bursts forth with this great song of praise for what God has done. He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. You see, when God does this great work of deliverance in our, in our own lives, our response needs to should be one of just public proclamation and praise. Now think about this. If your team, whatever, whoever your team is, does this great thing at the end of the game, they have this great play with this, the last seconds of the game, and they win the game, you're so excited, and you go and you tell everybody you know with this great thing that you saw your team do. When my wife goes to Kohl's and she goes shopping... She sees a great sale. She takes advantage of it. Not only does she take advantage of it, but then she's on the phone to her family and friends and say, Hey, you need to know about this great sale down at Kohl's. How much more, right? When God does something great for us, we should be telling everybody about it. See what great things God has done for us? To give you an example in my own life, I'll tell you a story about my mom a little more than 10 years ago, my mom was having some problems with her stomach and uh, some digestive issues, and it was painful. And she went to her doctor, and they were trying some different things, some different medications, and nothing seemed to be helping her. It was getting worse. And so finally the doctor said, you know, let's take a look. Let's do a scan of your stomach. And they did a scan, and there was something there that brought some concern. And so he said, I want to do some exploratory surgery on your stomach, and we might take a biopsy. If we think we can fix it while we're there, we'll do it. And so they scheduled her for surgery. And when the time for surgery came, they gave her some kind of a pre-anesthetic. I don't understand it, but it's like this thing that calms you down and relaxes you. And so my mom was still conscious and present. She was a little loopy and not quite all together. But, you know, there the doctor came in and talked with her about what was going to happen in the surgery and asked if she had any questions or concerns. He's basically trying to alleviate her anxieties. And, and he asked her, is there, is there anything you're concerned about? And my mom said, well, you know, to be honest with you, there is. My, I'm concerned my father died from pancreatic cancer, and so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, maybe I've got pancreatic cancer. I'm kind of worried about that. And the doctor said, well, he says, hey, we're going to be in there looking at your stomach. He says, I'll just take a peek at your pancreas, and we'll see if we think there are any issues with there, and hopefully that will help you feel better. And my mom was like, yeah, that would be great. And so they did the surgery, and there was a minor problem with her stomach, and they, they worked on it and seemed to fix it. And then he went and looked at her pancreas organ and sure enough it was swollen and and it looked like it had poor tissue in it that looked cancerous and so the doctor on the spot made the decision to go ahead and remove her pancreas uh, because pancreatic cancer oftentimes can be very fatal cancer and uh, and often I think the survival rate on pancreatic cancer is like one percent or less normally they don't find it until it's gone to other organs and so he looked around it didn't seem like the cancer had spread anywhere else and and the next day, as my mom was recovering in her hospital room, he met with her and he told her what he found. And, and he said, I went ahead and removed it. It doesn't appear like the cancer spread. We're going to run some tests and probably need to do some uh, low-maintenance chemo. But he goes, I think you're going to be in this 1% that you're going to be okay. I don't think it's going to be an issue. He goes, it's a remarkable thing. I'm glad you told me about your, grandfather, or your father who had pancreatic cancer. 
And my mom looked at him and said, here's the remarkable thing. My father didn't have pancreatic cancer. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Honest story. And there was a long silence in the room. The doctor said, finally, he said, I'm just going to chalk this one up to a God thing. So that's a remarkable thing that God has done in our family's life. And he's done a lot of other things. Maybe not as amazing as that, but some great, great things. And I know that God, as you look back on your own life, you can see how God has been at work in your own life. And our response ought to be one of telling everyone we see and know of the great things that God has done for us. Many will see and put their trust in the Lord. Many are the wonders that you have done. See, we're waiting patiently for the Lord, and it's an active step of faith. It's not a lazy waiting or a resigned acceptance of an unknown fate. For the person of faith waiting patiently for the Lord is trusting that God will hear and act on our behalf. We don't need to know when God will act or how God will act. We place our absolute trust that the one who knows us best will most certainly bring us to a place in our lives where the new song will be placed in our hearts and it will be brought to our lips. And we'll look back and think about what God did to bring us out of that dark, slimy pit and put us on a firm foundation. So when we have come out of the pit and we are there no more, what does God desire in our life and in our lifestyle? Well, the psalmist goes on in verse 6 and he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. The psalmist is not rejecting the law and and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Rather, he's declaring that sacrifices for sin in of themselves are not enough to please God. Better than a sacrifice is an ear opened to the voice and the will of God, a heart that's committed to doing the will of God. He says in verse 8, I desire to do your will. Your law is written on my heart. You see, what God wants is an open ear. And he wants us to delight in doing his will. Now, the Hebrew for open, opening the ear literally means that God digs ears out for us. As if our ears are jammed with some kind of wax or junk. And, and if only God can bore this stuff out, can we actually hear God? And that leads to a couple of questions in my mind. What fills our ears that keeps us from being able to hear God? Another question is, is doing the will of God for us a chore? Is it a duty? Or is it a delight? Do we actually get enjoyment and are we pleased to do the will of God? You know, young people in love, they take great delight in doing any little favor for their beloved. Can we be as eager and as joyful to do favors for God? And if we're not joyful to do those things for God, why is that? What's going on in our heart that would cause us to respond that way? So in this psalm, this psalm appears to be this beautiful testimony of God's faithfulness and and delivering us from the pit of life into a good place. It's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing. And suddenly it turns and it becomes this sad kind of psalm. There's difficulty, there's pain, there's, there's sadness here. And it's like we veer off into this ditch of a lament and... We wonder, how did we get here all of a sudden? What's going on? Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. 
May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me. I, I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Suddenly the psalmist is in this place of desperation again. It's almost like he's back in the slimy pit. My troubles surround me. My sins have overtaken me. They're more than I can even count. I can't see a way out. My heart fails within me. What happened? How did we end up back in the pit again? I believe life happened. Humanity happened. Sin happened. We're going along and we're kind of on cruise control and we're praising God for His goodness. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get sideswiped by a storm in life. Or uh, we, we slip up on our part. Maybe it's a failure to focus on delighting the Lord. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a pit again. Whatever the cause of the new problem, the psalmist cries out to God. He says, save me. Come quickly. Help me. It's a, it's a new prayer of hope that God would not abandon us. Please, God, come quickly. Don't delay. And the placement of this lament in this psalm seems strange to us, but I appreciate that laments are in the Scripture. They're all over the Scripture. It's like God is telling us, it's okay. Your, your tough feelings, your hard feelings, it's okay. You can share them with me. You know, your feelings of, of being angry or sad or fearful or deeply wounded or broken, God values our authenticity when we're real with Him. We can take our honest feelings to God and He hears all of our prayers. The psalmist even goes so far as to ask God to deal with those that are mocking or shaming Him for His difficult circumstances. Verse 15, he says, May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! Be appalled at their own shame. The author of this psalm has been honest with God about his own failure, and it appears now that others are mocking him because of what has happened. And let me just say, church, that when we see a fellow believer who has stumbled or has fallen because of failure, our response should be redemptive. It should be a response of grace and of love and of encouragement, not punitive, not judgment. God is a God of grace and mercy. And yet how often have we heard of or seen a church that, that comes to a place of judgment and rejection where gossip and, and backstabbing overtake the body of Christ, we should be on guard in the body of Christ to ensure that the place, the church, literally be a place of restoration, of healing, of renewal in someone's life. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6, chapter 1 and, or verses 1 and 2. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The psalmist basically recognizes that we are all in constant need of God's love and mercy. Basically saying, God, to those who desire my ruin and they mock me, could you hold up your mirror of righteousness in front of their face so that they may see their own sin, their own failure, their own place of brokenness? And then the psalmist concludes this psalm, by uh, basically he gathers up all that he said in the first 16 verses and he, and he basically gives us a summary and a short prayer in the last verse, a short prayer of discovery. He prays two parts of prayer of discovery. He basically prays a prayer that says, God, help us to discover who we are. God, help me discover who I am. And he says, but as for me, 
I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. But then he prays a, a prayer of discovery. God, help us to discover who you are. And he says, you are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. We praise God for what he has done for us. I would like to close the message by asking you to stand. And instead of me offering a prayer, I want us to all pray together a prayer of response that comes from this last verse. It's going to be on the screen behind me. So let's stand and let's offer this prayer to the Lord in response to this passage that we've been looking at. As for us, we are poor and needy. May the Lord think of us. You are our help and our deliverer. You are our God. Do not delay. Amen.